Hello and welcome to Talk of Today, where I interview experts in science, technology and society about developments in their fields and what they could mean for the future. I'm your host, Sam Barton. So last week, I got my first few supporters on Patreon. I'm now receiving about 20 bucks a month from some of the listeners of this show, which is enough to cover my monthly hosting costs, which I am super excited about. To my supporters out there listening, I am deeply humbled to have your support. You know who you are. Getting the email from Patreon notifying me that there were some people in the world that liked the podcast enough to contribute has been one of the highlights of my year. For days, I kept coming back to the thought incredulously. As I've said in the past, I'm not going to be running any ads on this show because I don't agree with the current advertising model. When an ad makes it through the filters in my life, I get triggered and there's a solid chance that I'll just turn off or close whatever I was looking at. So your support literally makes this possible for me. One of my Patreon stretch goals is to get some new recording equipment to improve the sound quality of the interviews I do in person. I'm going to be traveling to the US and Canada in August for a few months, and I'm looking to do a bunch of interviews in the flesh, so some new hardware will really make a world of a difference. So if you would like to become a supporter, you can do so through patreon.com slash talk of today, and you can become my patron for as little as $1 a month. Or for 20 bucks a month, you can join me for a monthly Google Hangout where we can chat about whatever. You can also head to talkoftoday.com slash support where you can donate once off through PayPal or through Bitcoin and Ethereum. If you'd like to support the show by other means, uh, please give the show a rating on iTunes or wherever and share it with your friends. Every little bit counts. Thanks again. So on to the show. My guest today is Kevin Kelly. He's senior maverick at Wired Magazine, which he co-founded in 1993. He also co-founded the All Species Foundation, a non-for-profit aimed at cataloging and identifying every living species on Earth, as well as the Rosetta Project, which is building a record of all documented human language. He has written numerous bestsellers and is held in high regard by many for his perspectives on technology and its relevance to history, biology, and society. He could be called the prophet of Silicon Valley, especially given the future outlined in his best-selling book, The Inevitable, which is the focus of our discussion today. It takes the vast swathes of technological developments that we've seen over the past few decades and paints a marvellous picture of what they could, and most likely will, inevitably mean for the future. It's a thoroughly entertaining and thought-provoking read. In today's episode, we discuss some of these future-shaping developments, including artificial intelligence and the cognifying of everything, the blockchain, information abundance, some startup advice for would-be innovators, and how these technologies will help us understand who we are. I first came across Kevin Kelly's work through Tim Ferriss's podcast, which, if you haven't checked out already, I highly recommend it. I've learned more about business and philosophies for life from his podcast than I did from my entire university education. So, yeah, definitely go and check that out. I was incredibly excited to have Kevin as a guest, and I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. So please, enjoy my conversation with the prophet of Silicon Valley, Kevin Kelly. I'm Kevin Kelly, the senior maverick at Wired Magazine, a magazine I co-founded in the 92-93 era. And um, I've since um, gone on to write a couple of books about the meaning of technology, the, the philosophy of technology, you might say. Uh, one was called What Technology Wants, which was a proto theory of technology. And the recent one, which just came out in paperback called The Inevitable, is about, uh, I guess, forecasts for the trends in technology, digital technology in the next 20 to 30 years. And um, the first, the earlier book was about the cosmic origins of, of, of technology, where it fits in the gun of the universe. And I decided to, you know, as I was writing it, I was writing things that were much more near future, what I call near future, which is in the next 20 or 30 years. And so um, I wrote the book in some ways to offer the world, to convince people, to change their mind, to see that this technology is making the world better 
that to, to offer an optimistic view of the future um, in contradistinction to the dystopian views that most science fiction movies give. And um, I think that it's going to be very hard for us to make a future that isn't friendly. I mean, that to make a future that's friendly if we don't have a vision of, of that, of what we want to try to make. And so the book is somewhat an attempt to offer people a vision of how we have a world filled with ubiquitous uh, artificial intelligence and and persistent um, virtual reality and um, ubiquitous tracking everywhere and screens and all this technology in, in another 30 years of development, how we have that world and want to live in that world. And part of what I'm trying to do is to describe uh, uh, those possibilities of, of, of a world full of that, the stuff that's good for us. Well, I think you do a, a very good job of, of that in the book. It's thoroughly entertaining and, you know, it's quite thought provoking. And I'd honestly say it's a, a must for anyone looking to navigate the increasingly complex world and to, and utilizing the technologies that will shape it. Um, well, thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, no problem. I, I it was, well, I was, I, I walked to work each day and, and I listened to audiobooks and it got me very excited. Uh, t- to be honest, I, I've never seen a more clear and coherent and, and realistic appraisal of what the world will or very well could look like in the, in the near future. So yeah, I highly recommend it's definitely on my highly recommended list. So I'd just like to like one, one of the major trends that you outline is cognifying, uh, where you explain how basically we'll make everything much smarter using AI. So what are the recent developments that have enabled the rapid growth and utility of AI? Yeah, I mean, AI was um, an old school endeavor, you know, almost as soon as computers were invented, there were people trying to make uh, artificial intelligence. And for a time in the early 50s, um, there was a sense that this was a project doable in, in a decade or so. And of course now it's 50 or 60 years later and, and we're still working on it. But there has been a lot of very recent advances in the last five years, which was brought about by a convergence of three breakthroughs. And um, one of those breakthroughs was um, the development of very cheap computer chips that were invented or designed to do um, graphical image processing used in computer games. Uh, They're called GPUs, graphical processor units. And it turned out that the kind of processing that video does, which is what technically called parallel processing, computing many things at once, turned out to be the perfect for doing artificial intelligence. And so at some point, the video game makers produced so many games that it plunged the price of these chips to become very cheap. And they, they, the big companies could build basically supercomputers for very little money using these cheap commodity chips. So all the big AI companies today are just have these huge, huge banks of these graphical processor cheap chips running. So that was one thing. The second thing was um, the um, main AI today is something called neural nets, which were invented in the 50s. Um, they can never get them to work very well because it turned out that they weren't big enough. They had to make them really, really like a thousand million nodes big. Uh, and they didn't know how to do that. And they figured out finally how to do that by stacking up layers of them and sending the information up layers so make a lots of small ones stacked up high. And um, that's called deep learning, deep neural nets. And that breakthrough in the software came four or five years ago. And the third big breakthrough was that these new neural nets that were much, much bigger um, demanded uh, examples to, to learn from. They called training sets in the millions. So in the old days, you would train the AI, you know, like this is a dog, this is a cat, this is a dog, this is a cat. And that's how it learned the difference between a dog and a cat. And 
um, they would do it a million times. They would take like a million pictures in Google of dogs that were called dog and take a million pictures of cats that were called cats and they would show it to the AI and they would learn. But it would take a million of them. And, um, and so it, it turned out that, that before that was hard to do, but now these big AI companies like Google would have all these data sets in almost every imaginable part of our lives you could imagine. Um, uh, they, they captured huge amounts of data about our real world and about our lives in, in information that was ready to be trained. And so that was the third breakthrough was we had these uh, big data. And it turned out that big data was what these big neural nets needed. And so suddenly we had those three things. And in the last four or five years, we've had these great advances where you can have um, self-driving cars. You can have um, computers that, that can recognize what's inside a photograph. You can have um, um, these conversational bots that understand what you're saying. You can speak back. And we have the Amazon recommendation engines and all this kind of stuff. And they're all based on the same thing, which is these uh, neural nets that do a type of perception which is really only one of the kinds of cognitions that we have in our mind. So we've only been able to really um, synthesize one type of cognition, but it's been very, very powerful. And um, all the th examples that were kind of seen in recent years have come from being able to um, do this perception at a degree that's not just as good as humans, but in some cases even better. And, um, uh, the, the, the frontier is just to go beyond that is to synthesize other aspects of our intelligence because our intelligence is a, a sweet and kind of a portfolio, a compound of many different types of cognition. Um, and um, as I said, we've, we've synthesized only one of them. Um, and we're going to work on the others over time and none of them are none of these synthesized AIs think like humans right now. They're, they're all, they all think differently than us because they're sometimes they're simpler because they're more extreme in certain dimensions. And even as we mix them and make new ones, we're not going to make them like humans. We're going to make them think differently than humans. And that's their main benefit. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say that's the, that's one of the, the huge value adds, I guess, that they they contribute is that the value of an AI is not that it's smarter than a human, but it can actually think differently. And it's right. then it there may be a need to think differently to try and solve some of the more the grander problems that we that yep. we come across in in the near future. Yes. Um. So so you say that uh, AI will be, and it already is in a way, like like a utility. You know, IQ as a service, similar to electricity. Do you mind uh, expanding upon that? So the um, the first industrial revolution that has altered our culture in every respect. Um, this um, what was came about because we invented collectively we the humans invented artificial power and um it was something new um because before that time during the agricultural time if you wanted to make anything you had to use natural power which was muscle power human muscle and animal muscle and that was very limited and you could only do so much with it but then we we, we invented uh ways to make many ways to make artificial power and we could take the equivalent of 250 horses, the power of 250 horse, 250 horsepower, and we could do whatever we want to do just by pushing a button. And so we would build skyscrapers and trains that cross continents and factories that churned out cloth by the mile or would produce books by the pile. And, and, and um, that was all because we could harness this, this artificial power and then we could distribute it and we the main way of distributing it was on the grid electrical grid and we sent artificial power to any home or homestead or farm or factory that wanted it and you could buy as much of this artificial power as you wanted to buy and it was a utility it was regulated like a utility it was deemed kind of like almost an um an essential thing that everybody had to have access to and farmers could Entrepreneurs could, could take this new commodity and they could uh, 
have an idea of like taking a manual water pump. You had a pump by hand, by natural muscle. And they said, oh, I, you know, I have an idea. I'm going to add uh, artificial power to it, and I'll make an a, a electric pump. We'll electrify it. And, you know, that was the origin of, of, of a business. And you multiply that one invention by a million times, and that's the Industrial Revolution. Again and again and again, you take something, you automate it. You take something, you electrify it. And I'm suggesting that now – this second industrial revolution, we're going to do the same thing, but we're going to take all the things that we've electrified and we're going to cognify them. We're going to add intelligence. And so um, to the car that has 250 horses and we're going to have 250 minds, they're not human minds, they're smartness that will be running 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that mind plus the power is the self-driving car. The new, the new Uber, the self-driving Uber car. And so um, we're going to multiply that by a million. Just take X, add AI that you purchase like a commodity, um, and um, we're going to, you know, we're, we're going to cognify everything in our lives, and that will have a huge effect in all aspects from fashion to food. Uh, entertainment, sports, religion, military, education. And so um, this is the new – this will be the new oil. This will be the new um, the new revolution that will, if, that, that will be accessible to everybody like electricity and will transform everything like electricity. Yeah, I, I, um, I remember – in the book, he's just saying, you know, the next 10,000 startups will be tech X, add AI, and then and profit. So, entrepreneurs right. or aspiring entrepreneurs out there listening, uh, take note because um, as you outline in the book, now is just like we're at the, the beginning of the inflection point. When, when we look back on um, the world and, you know, how, how much we've progressed, this is the point at which everything kind of, or everything kind of just skyrockets. So, as you say, there's, there's never been a better time to, to start up. Yes, they're they're given the advance in tools. We the the average person has more access to better tools, to larger markets and larger audience, to cheaper money, to um, more know-how than ever before. And so, so in terms of the of the of history of the past, this is by far the best time in the world to, to make something. But also, if you look to the future, it's also the best time because we're at the beginning of all these um, new uh, revolutionary changes coming and all there's a lot of low-hanging fruit that are easy picking for early pioneers um, to figure things, who figure them out and um, some of them will be quite simple, but we're really starting from uh, a, a real bed of ignorance because there are no AI experts at the moment compared to what we'll know in 30 years. Um, we really have no idea what intelligence is. We have no idea what artificial intelligence is. And um, because there's no experts, and, and that's true for virtual reality as well and the other things, um, we're just at day one of the or first hour of day one. and Anybody out there has as much chance of becoming the expert as as anybody who's now participating because it's we're we're just at the few first seconds of the race, and um, that means that given the future, this is also the best time in history to be making something. So from the past to the future, there is no better time than right now to start something or make something happen. It's exciting. It's exciting. So you make reference to a great analogy um, for artificial intelligence in the book. Basically, intelligence needs to be taught, and you can think about it like a, a rocket ship. You know, the rocket ship is made up of machine learning algorithms and the GPUs, and the fuel is data. So without data, you know, the rocket won't go anywhere. Now, an ever-increasing amount of data is being created daily, and, you know, it's increasing at an exponential rate and a lot of this data some would consider personal. So the issue of privacy 
has been one that has been on the minds of of netizens for a while. And in in your book, The Inevitable, you highlight a bit of a, a quandary in my mind. You know, people like personalized services, and the only way to get personalized services is to be open and transparent to those delivering those services. And people also want things now. And for things to happen in real time, we need to track stuff. So can you talk me through your views on the tracking of data, privacy, and why we might be open to a more transparent future? Yeah. So, you know, I titled my book The Inevitable because a lot of these trends um, in technology are inevitable. Um, these large-scale tendencies are going to happen no matter what what politicians are doing, which person is lucky enough to be the first to invent it because there's always a, 10 people right behind them the next day who would invent it if not them. But there are, but the but the particulars of how these products or services come into our lives are not at all inevitable. They're they're wide open and very contingent on on uh, the choices that we make. So how we choose the character of these things is um, open to us and dependent upon us and they matter hugely to us. And so um, one of the things that's inevitable is more tracking. So, so there will be more tracking. There's, there's, I can't see any force in the world that will diminish the amount of tracking in the future in our lives because technology wants to track just like it wants to copy things. It wants to track. It's just inherent bias in the way the technology and the senses that we make our microphones and cameras, they all want to collect information and pass it on. And so there will be more tracking in the future. And the, so the question is not really, can we stop it because we can't stop the tracking we can civilize it. We can domesticate it. We can change the character of it to make it something more suitable to us. And I suggest that one of the choices that we have is to try and make the tracking more symmetrical, more two-way, more mutual. So while the cops, the police are probably going to be filming us, we should be able to film the police. And we should have access to the uh, the the video that the police create and they should have access to ours and there should be a, a mutual symmetry to the data collection so that I should be able to watch whoever watches me. I should be able to have access to the information that's collected about me. I should have uh, an ability to correct it if it's incorrect um, the, 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 the watchers should be accountable to what they do with the information afterwards. And most importantly, I should get huge benefits directly for that. And not all of those right now exist in a lot of the tracking that's happening uh, with us. And there has to be an additional ways in which we can bring symmetry to, say, a Google or a Facebook as they are compiling information about us. They're obviously much bigger than us. Um, so that symmetry has to be in some ways, um, oh, what's the word I want, uh, conditioned so that it, it actually is meaningful. And um, if we can restore some of that symmetry that we might have enjoyed in a small town where the lady across the street was watching us, but we were watching her, and we got some benefits because she called the cops when strangers showed up, when we were gone. So um, if we can restore some of that symmetry, I think um, it becomes a lot more comfortable. And I call that symmetry covalence because we are surveilling each other. Um, and in that covalence is, um, uh, I, I think we recognize that because we evolved as humanoids and humanids for hundreds of thousands of years in clans where everybody knew every, every, everything about, literally everything about everybody else. I mean, we were totally transparent. So we are actually comfortable with that kind of covalence um, if we can rest restore it in some way in, in this modern world. 
I was I was thinking about um, the big data analogy, uh, well, the, the artificial intelligence analogy, and just the, how data is a necessary condition for these for the, this, these things to progress. And I was thinking, do you think we'll have a bit of an obligation to capture and share data for the benefit of society? Because even though we are one drop in the ocean, you know, the ocean is the sum of the drops, and you know, each drop is is somewhat important. Uh, what what are your thoughts on that? Um, I uh, yes, I think that in certain arenas that will be true. For instance, I, I DNA. I think that we'll come to understand that we have an obligation to share our DNA uh, for several reasons. One is because our DNA is really not our DNA. I mean, we uh, we share ninety nine point nine nine percent of our DNA with each other. So we have, there's only a very small amount where we actually have any individuality. And of course, um, those small amounts are, um, I don't think we can really say we own them. They may make us, but um, by sharing our DNA and the other aspects of our, say our our outward appearance and outward behavior, we actually um, can boost the health of everybody. We can all benefit from that because the insight derived from having this pool of genetic information connected to our general health will transform medicine and we would reap far more benefits than whatever minor inconvenience that would entail um, from sharing that data. Yeah, I um, I, I agree, and you know, I think you. Th- there's a quote from the book that I um that I thought was very, very interesting. Um, and you know, it's one of the greatest benefits that AI w- will deliver. And when I say AI, I just mean like all of these um technologies kind of wrapped up into one, because that's in a way what's happening. They're all converging just to create uh this amazing service or just this huge augmentation to our current tool set but you know the greatest benefit is not increases in productivity or economics or abundance but ai will help to find humanity and we need ai to tell us who we are which i think is quite a quite a profound statement and i i agree with it and you know just the um the the reference to our dna and and all of that by by getting data on just our interactions at a macro level we may see you know emergent even moral laws that that arise um from that yeah yeah i i I, I think so i think um you know we have public spaces we have the commons and the the question you're kind of asking is is you know could we imagine a, a data commons where um you know we we uh are obligated at least or compelled to um, join the commons in order to benefit everybody. And um, you know, tax, taxes are, are commons, right? So we all are obliged to pay taxes, although apparently the president of the United States doesn't have to, but we're all obliged to pay taxes. And um, from that common pool, a common wealth comes, you know, shared benefits. And so there could be a common wealth of data. And I'm, you know, one of them could be DNA, but there could be others as well, as you're suggesting. So, referring to this this common wealth, um, we live in a, a you know, a, a world filled with countries, you know, nation states that are that are seemingly separate, at least in the minds of many, but uh, are incredibly interconnected. And, you know, we, we view the digital realm very different, differently to the physical. And, you know, our government institutions reflect that. So, do you think that we'll need a global internet rulebook or a set of laws that we all adhere to um, in the near future to, to realize some of the benefits that you outline in The Inevitable? I do. I, I, I do. This is another unpopular idea where I have maybe heretical leanings, and that is um, – I, I think we can't really have a planetary superorganism of all the adults on the planet linked up together in real time with, you know, 7 billion devices linked up with 
seven trillion um, other devices in people's homes and uh, factories, all of them connected together into one large machine um, at a planetary scale with the you know new hope, the new opportunity to have planetary level collaboration in real time, something we have never experienced before. But we can't do all that and not have some kind of global governance. Um, and, um, you know, we talk about globalism today, but this is a very weak form of globalism. It's a very kind of um, indirect, non-deliberate um, globalism. And it's, but I'm talking about a much stronger version where we actually truly are acting in a uh, unified organism and um, there'll be legal issues, there'll be cultural issues, there'll be all kinds of conflicts produced by this knitting together at a, at a much stronger level and and um, uh, I you know, I, I think we would need some kind of global global governance, but but global governance is um, the the left is allergic to it, the right is allergic to it, the developing countries are allergic to it, everybody hates it, and um, uh, even I, who think it's inevitable, um, don't have any idea how it would actually work. I mean, it would it's like Wikipedia, something that would be um, uh, doesn't work in theory but only works in practice um it is hard to imagine how you'd have a functioning democracy for seven billion people and so um so i think this is a huge challenge a huge frontier um that people are kind of reluctant to dive into because it really seems impossible and maybe even undesirable but um it's a bit of necessity in a way I, yeah, I think it's a necessity in the long term. Yeah, I um, this the the issue of global citizenship is one that's I would say close to my heart, and it's not just from a you know a feel good standpoint, but we're at a unique point in history where for the first time ever we can now chart our course through time and space. We can choose how we evolve, you know, on a biological level, but also on a societal level, and our decisions that we make even at the national level have global ramifications and i don't think we've ever been at a point in time where we have so much responsibility or power you know with there's that come you know with great power comes great responsibility and i don't think that um we are thinking about this or like the just the power that we have in our hands to a reason to well, i don't think with we are cognizant of it enough and uh it's something that we need to fix or try and solve sooner rather than later. Um, I don't want to talk too much about the global global citizenship but, and all of that, but are you familiar with decentralized autonomous organizations? Because that could be one way in which we create this, this global collective and do so transparently. So um, in the inevitable, I'll talk a little bit about blockchain technology and the uh, way that, cryptocurrencies power it and for the benefit of listeners would the, the idea behind uh, the blockchain is that it's a way to distribute trust in a public accounted way and they do that by um chaining um uh, assertions so that the so that one assertion is encrypted with the previous uh with the previous assertion so that in order to create fraud or to, to disrupt that assertion, you actually have to kind of like unravel everything that's already been publicly posted. And that becomes extremely difficult, if not yeah. impossible. You so there like is, there is half the computers on the network plus one right. or something. If you've got the whole right. world on the network, you're going to have a, right. a bit of a hard time. So you're chaining together, um, in a, in a public way, um, the, the security and so the security emerges in the network as a whole instead of 
by an individual or an agency who's going to say, uh, we, we checked this out and this is okay. And so you have this distributed trust system. And the idea would be that if you had this embedded in, you could actually have like a, a corporation that was nothing but these um, assertions and people would be involved, but the, the governance of this would come in a, in, in a way that would have been blockchained so that it had to follow the original charter and couldn't deviate. Um, it would kind of obey a certain set of rules and you couldn't defraud it because everything was blockchain. And the idea was that if you did this in a broad way, you could have a distributed organization that was autonomous. It was autonomous in the sense that it was just following a set of rules that had been programmed into it and maybe even an AI for that matter. Um, so in theory, you know, there, there, there would be some promise. It's not clear exactly, you know, what the benefits of this would be. Um, the one or two trials that I know about have actually not ended so well. Um, so this, it's been tried a couple times. And um, what happens is, there's, you know, it's because these are programs written by humans, there's often a little bug or glitch. And the problem is who gets there's actually nobody there to kind of fix it. And so you have the argument about who gets to fix the bug since it's supposed to be autonomous. And so um, uh, there's a lot of, of challenges still to, to figure out, but there is the potential of uh, even outside the autonomous organization of using blockchain to technology to, to help us uh, imagine a, a global governance um, because seven billion people is probably much too difficult to um, police to, to 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 ensure everything is working. So you do need a kind of a distributed trust system of some sort, and having something built on what we understand generally as a blockchain would be one solution to try and implement that. Like say, you know, if it was a a, a voting system or something where you have seven billion people voting. You can't, you know, that's really hard to enforce or police, but you could use a blockchain a system to try and help with that. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm in Australia currently, and uh, even managing 25 million people is a bit of a challenge from what I could see from the, the local politicking here. <laughs> um, this topic of the blockchain is, is one that um, I think is similar to AI in that if you could just add blockchain to X, you could do very, very well. I mean, from, from healthcare records to, um, you know, as you said, voting through currencies through, as, as we're seeing now, um, initial coin offerings, uh, for, for companies trying to raise money. It's, um, it's kind of a wild west situation in a way. And it's one that's very exciting because of all of the, uh, well, like the trust that's inherent in it. We, uh, it's decentralizing trust, as you said. And uh, I think it, it's very, very exciting. Um, so I want to switch over to virtual reality and augmented reality. And I understand that 20 or 30 years ago, uh, you experienced it. Um, so what has changed in that time? What, what has made it commercially viable and what does the future of these, well, mediums, uh, what, what, what does the future of the medium uh, look like and what does it mean for how we interact with technology and more importantly each other so in the late 90s i had the privilege to um be president as people like jaron lanier invented virtual reality and he had a setup um which he uh showed me pretty early that had most of the components that say the oculus would have today it had um pretty good goggles it had a uh, you know okay resolution world that you could make pretty fast it had gloves which gave you tactile um senses inside and and it, had, it was a shared world so you could have more than one person in the the difference is is that that setup was probably about a, a million dollars in today's money to do it was just so expensive and and expensive not just to make but to maintain the head tracking uh, devices and stuff were very very finicky and was it was just a huge expensive headache to make and that really kept developers away it prevented it from ever becoming a commodity and 
the difference between now and then is that the VR is maybe not, it's not a million times better, but it's a million times cheaper. Okay, so so well, actually not a million times, but maybe what is that? It's a hundred thousand or hundred thousand times. So um, it's uh, the the phone, what happened was uh, uh, smartphone technology was hijacked in in for three parts, the three main parts of VR. Um, it took the head tracking stuff which I, I talked about, which was a huge headache and very expensive back then, uh, and it reduced it to a single cheap few cent chip in the smartphone they were produced in quantity so they became cheap um that and the screens that are used in the smartphone became the screens inside your vr um uh, goggles they were just perfect perfect resolution the perfect size and again they were super cheap they became super cheap through smartphones and then the third one was a video processing chip which used to be huge you know workstation scale computers and now again it's this little kind of tiny chip on in a smartphone so those three things have been hijacked for today's vr bringing the cost down to in the many hundreds less than a thousand dollars and um that's why we're now talking about vr again because not that the quality has increased so much but it's that the price is a hundred thousand times cheaper and how do you see uh VR and augmented reality changing how we interact with data and uh, each other. How how do you see us using these technologies just to well create an experience? So I think the key word there is experience because um, VR works on a part of our brain that's um, deeper and not the same part of the brain that we use to look at a screen. It's it's much closer to a yeah, reptilian, deeper brain stem um, feeling that um, there's, a, there's a trick played by the technology to convince us that something is really there, that we are really there, that, we are, that, that there's a presence that's real, even if it doesn't look real, feels real, which is very similar to the kind of um, illusion that we get in cinema that something has moved across the screen when in fact there's been no movement whatsoever. It's still pictures in a, in a sequence. And so, um, we, uh, can use this new illusion, so to speak of, of presence and immersion. Um, it turns out that this is, this is very powerful and cause you, cause it's operating on a non-intellectual level of your body and um, it's it, it creates experiences, and experiences actually turn out to be one of the few f- things that we produce that are getting more expensive rather than cheaper every year. And so, there's an, a, we can imagine a new economy built around an internet of not information, but an internet of experiences, which become the new currency, where you download an experience, you purchase an experience, you share experiences. Um, because one of the things we've learned from Jaron Lanier's early days in VR till now is that while it's really cool to, you know, experience a, a world uh, immersed in a foreign world, an alien world, a dangerous world, and it's really cool to have like objects that we can manipulate and 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 um, these virtual objects in the spaces. But the the, the main attraction, the, the 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 chief virtue of the stuff is that other people inside that, that that it's when other people in or inside VR that everything becomes really great. And so this means that the VR has potential to become the most social of all the social media and that it's not just experiences, but it's shared experiences, experiences shared with others, strangers or friends, coworkers. And I think, um, uh, that's the vision of where we're going with this is, this is, internet of experiences uh, in these shared worlds with the most social of all the social media. Um, it's kind of the platform after smartphones. Yeah, it's uh, it's very exciting. I've tried the 
the HTC Vive and um, some of the, I've got the Samsung Galaxy. So I use that every so often. And um, I'm very, very excited to, to see what, what happens in the near future, especially uh, I'm thinking like even just with regards to sports, the, the bridge between the physical reality that we live in and the digital realm coming together. I think esports may be not a thing of the past, but we'll have this this brings the coming together of, of of these two types of sports just create something completely new, and it's one that I'm I'm very very exciting uh, excited about. So I know we're coming, um, where and I, I want to be respectful of, of your time. Um, is there anything um, that you'd like to say to the people listening out there, or do you have any advice for you know aspiring entrepreneur entrepreneurs or technologists or anyone who is passionate about the future? Yeah. Um, entrepreneurs. Uh, I think, um, the, you know, um, I, I guess I reiterate this, this call that um, we're at this fantastic time um, at the beginning of things. And um, we were talking about AI as a commodity, and um, the thing is, is that you, 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 anybody, you or I, or any of your listeners, could can purchase some AI right now from Google at the Google TensorFlow, and you can or purchase it from IBM or or Microsoft if you prefer. Um, and I, it reminds me of kind of the early days of the Industrial Revolution when there was all these uh, amateurs who were fiddling around with electricity in their barns and workshops uh, because at the time people had no idea what electricity was. I mean, we, we forget that in the beginning there was this uncertainty about whether it was an animal force, whether it was a, a life force, whether it was a Ethereum, another dimension. I mean, people really had no idea that of course there were these electrons and whatnot. And so everybody was fooling around with them and, and, and um, there were a lot of really cool discoveries made just by people fooling around because they were interested. And of course, you know, out of it came a whole industry, if we should say. Um, and by the way, all the early um, businesses that used electricity had VPs of electricity. It was just such a mysterious and, hard to use and hard to understand thing that they're actually vice presidents of electricity. Imagine that title today. <laughs> right. Well, and the equivalent would be VP of AI. Yeah. So um, what I'm suggesting is, is that um, you can fool around with these things. Um, it, I, I, I think it's like, like what you're doing with VR. It's, it's um, much more is to be gained by, trying them, investing some time, wasting some time, playing around with the stuff, um, being engaged with it as much as possible. And um, rather than kind of just reading about it or having opinions about it without having tried it. And so I, I, I think um, there is a, we're in this period in such early days that some of the biggest discoveries are going to be made by people who are just wasting time with it, um, doing frivolous things. And a lot of the early stuff to us is going to seem like toys and play and not even games. And that's fine. That's good. That's actually what's required. Um, and I think the nature of this, in the, in the, these kind of territories is that this startup, arena is by definition um not very profitable oh, high risk um very likelihood of failure um uh, low margins small market um you know great uncertainty it's sort of like the worst possible place to do business and so in a certain sense you don't want to do business but you do want to invest into trying things there so if you because it's so bad for business that big companies are going to avoid where you want to play, but you have the advantage in theory that, that you can fail because the big business can't really afford to fail. And so, um, so, so I'm saying it's kind of a prime territory for young people 
who are willing to take a risk and, and have failure. And if, if you are willing to fail a couple of times in exploring this, I, I think this is a great place to invest for the future. Well, Kevin, thank you very much for being on the show. It was my pleasure and delight. I really enjoyed doing it. Thanks for some great questions. Um, I hope I was useful to some of your listeners. Um, all the links can, to what we discussed will be found um, in the uh, in the show notes. If where, where can people uh, you know follow some of your work and reach out? Um, my homepage is in my initials kk dot org. Um, there's also cool tools is there where we have a user generated system for people recommending or reviewing one cool tool a day. Uh, we have a weekly one page summary of six really brief recommendations of cool stuff to listen to, watch, read, go places to visit tools, tips, and call recommendo recommendo.com with one M. Um, and so occasionally I tweet under Kevin two Kelly, Kevin number two Kelly, but, um, uh, and then there's my books, the inevitable now in paperback. So thank you very much for tuning in. If you are enjoying the podcast and you would like to support it, you can do so through Patreon at patreon.com slash talk of today or through talk of slash support. And you can also give it a, uh, a rating on iTunes or whichever, whichever other service you use, uh, any support, any help counts. So thanks again. If there are some topics that you'd like to hear covered on this show, just uh, let me know. You can get in touch through the website or through the Facebook page, which is Talk of Today Official. Kind of, kind of mad that I didn't get the uh, standard Talk of Today. I don't think I got that on Twitter either. So perhaps there will be some consolidation in the future, but that is not going to happen now. Uh, as I mentioned at the start of this episode, I'm going to be traveling through the U.S. and Canada uh, for. A few months the period like i don't know if or when i'll be coming home i'd like to stay indefinitely at least i have no idea uh so yes i'm going to be traveling around trying to interview um interesting people about interesting things so like i said any recommendations please get in touch uh next week's episode is on meditation i interviewed dr sarah lazar from harvard about her research on meditation and yoga uh, and was really really quite interesting um i think meditation and really anything pertaining to consciousness you know the the hard problem as it's called i think all of that is uh is fascinating because it's got to do with you know questions of of being and we d we really don't know we don't know that much uh so yeah and i've also i'm in talks with um the guys at imperial college who are doing work who are doing research on the psychedelics they've done brain imaging studies on people under the influence of lsd and psilocybin mushrooms and now dmt so i'm really excited to to chat to them so i'm organizing that one so that should be recorded over the next week or two and uploaded um within a month so yeah stay tuned um any feedback if you guys want to say anything you can just uh, reach out um Always happy to have a chat. Uh, yeah, any feedback is, is welcomed. I, I want to make this as good as it can be for you. So I think that's all I want to cover. Um, I was so stoked to have this interview. Um, <laughs> and I think that's it. So I bid thee farewell. Bid thee farewell. And um, have a wonderful morning, evening, afternoon, night, and life.